Hey everybody, welcome back to The Negotiation. And on today's show, we talk to Michael Zakur, Vice President of Asia and Digital International for Tompkins International, a global consulting firm focused on digital commerce, retail, and consumer products, and also the author of New Retail, Born in China, Going Global. Today, we discuss why it's so important to deeply understand China's culture, history, philosophy, and language, especially with regards to your target market and what new retail is and why China is leading the global charge. What is your favorite Chinese brand and why? Well, my favorite Chinese company is Alibaba, far and away, because um, they've literally reinvented retail, and I think they're the most important company globally to the fourth industrial revolution, the digital industrial revolution. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber and Facebook. Times are changing and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Todd. Good to be here. So many people know you as uh, this this expert on China, which you are. But how did your fascination with the Middle Kingdom begin? Like, what was your first experience and and first China uh, touch points and market touch points over there? Um, well, I, I I got into China by accident, like I do with a, a lot of things in my life. Um, my background is actually in e-commerce and digital commerce. Uh, I was a part of the Web 1.0 movement in the uh, late 90s, uh, mid 90s, early 2000s. Uh, finally, when the, the bubble broke in 2000, 2001, uh, I needed to find something else to do because there weren't a whole lot of jobs in e-commerce and technology at that point. Um, and so I got on a plane and I flew to China and I was the first foreign employee at a Chinese leather garment manufacturing company essentially landed in China not knowing anything about the country, the language, the culture, uh, manufacturing, uh, or fashion. Uh, so I was off to a good start from day one. But long story short, um, they brought me in because I had a history of building businesses. And with China about to join the WTO a year later, uh, my bosses, my new bosses, thought this China thing was going to be really big someday. And uh, they put me to work on building a series of new businesses investments for them on a global basis. So the company you were working for wasn't pure, pure, pure Chinese. Like the, le- the you're talking about the leather garment company. Yeah, it was a pure, pure, pure in the purest sense Chinese company. I was the only foreigner. Um, their only connection to the outside world uh, was a couple of people who acted as their selling agents in North America. And um, I'll tell you how pure of a Chinese company they were. I showed up for my first day of work and I was feeling a little intimidated and culture shocked. 
and I'm expecting the big boss to come out and maybe be wearing purple and gold flowing robes. And he, he walked out in a dirty T-shirt, stained shorts, flip-flops, and a cigarette hanging from his lip. And he told me to leave. And the only person in the office who could speak a little English told me um, I wasn't being fired, but he wanted me to wander around China for 90 days and then come back to Beijing, which I duly did. Uh, I came back after three months alone, and he came out with the same shirt, same shorts, same flip-flops, and I think it was the same cigarette hanging from his lip, and he told me to leave again. Um, and this time he put me on a truck, and he shipped me off to Inner Mongolia, where I spent three months living on a pig farm. So three months up to my knees in mud and pig poo, learning how to raise pigs, love pigs, feed pigs, kill pigs and then take their skins because we made our leather garments from pig napa uh finally went back to beijing again uh he told me this time i could stay which i thought was good news i couldn't have been more wrong he put me on the factory floor and i spent the next three months cutting stitching sewing packing and shipping leather jackets and then finally, he put me on a plane back to America where I had to knock on doors at Macy's and JCPenney and Kohl's to actually sell the jackets. So first thing he did was tested whether I was gonna go home crying to mommy, wandering around China by myself. The second thing and the best lesson I was ever taught in my business life was that things don't just magically appear. That jacket hanging on a rack at Macy's came from a pig farm in Inner Mongolia. Why were you so passionate about the end game in order to stick it out through that? I mean, I remember my first times landing in China and it was a bit of a, a similar feeling a little bit lost, feeling a lot scared, a whole bunch of questions of like, what have I done? Why am I doing this? Why am I here? Um, how soon can I go home? But you went through... A thousand times worse than that and you you kept getting pushed around you get you know and i'm sure you weren't getting a lot of uh you know why um you were just getting told uh what and where and how and i'm just curious what why did you keep doing it what 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 were you what mission or passion did you have that you're holding on to that kept you kept you going through it well todd initially it was that great human motivator desperation um, <laughs> but, but in all honesty, once I spent some time walking around that country and, um, getting to know this company and, and my boss and the factory, you know, this is the early 2000s, 2001, 2002. And, and I came to believe that the people who hired me and sent me there were absolutely right that this China thing was going to be big someday. And I discovered that this was a country on the move. It was full of passion, energy, change was in the air. Um, and it was a place where uh, a kid from New Jersey might be able to make his mark. Okay. That's a, that's a pretty incredible story. Um, so what was your perception of conducting business like it just theoretically almost and and i don't even talk about those those first 270 days that you were in china before you even got sent back to america i mean what was your perception of, of conducting business in in that country um and how did it start to change over the next few years i think the the first and harshest lesson i learned was uh, it might be a bit of a cliche at this point i don't know but 
in China, anything is possible, but nothing is easy. And that there is a, a solution for every problem that requires patience, that requires uh, cultural dexterity, uh, the ability and willingness to bend your mind and your body and your spirit um, for cultural dexterity in order to uh, not give up who you are completely, but to adapt enough to the time and place and environment you're in um, to be a part of it. And I think finding that balance between the two was the key to moving forward in inspiration. Frankly, seeing results helped. Um, you know, after the first year, actually seeing some fruits of the labor, um, helping this company acquire other companies, mm -hmm. grow from a couple products to dozens, um, setting up a consulting firm for them, finding that clients were interested in what we were offering. Um, so it was a, just a combination of, you know, reality checking myself on who I am and what I needed to be there. Um, and actually seeing the fruits of the hard work pay off. Okay, and that, and it was a Herculean effort by all accounts, for sure. Obviously, you know it's not easily replicable. Not a lot of people can do what you did, and most whom have um, have gone on to write books about it, as you have as well, um, because it is just so monumental. I stood on the shoulders of a lot of giants. There, there was a wave of adventurers that arrived in China in the late 80s and the early 90s. Uh, there was kind of an in-between wave of foreigners who went to China in the late 90s. Um, and so there were enough lessons, both good and bad, to be learned by the time I got there in the early 2000s. Um, and there were people who went through um, a, a much more difficult uh, situation and getting themselves established in, uh, than I did before I got there. So um, I, I think part of it was there, there was the chance to stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, I also think that the timing was right where getting there, you know, in those six or seven years before the Beijing Olympics, you know, the opportunity was ripe. It was kind of a free flowing, anything goes atmosphere. So I don't know if I did anything right or wrong more than anybody else. I think it was a matter of timing and drive and just sensing an opportunity that, that turned out to be fruitful. How much of that do you think is is so necessary like we can't expect um everybody to have to go through all of what you went through um and, and i know a lot of people that have gone through bits and pieces of that people who have learned the language by going and living in a remote city where nobody speaks english and staying there for six months living with a family reading the newspaper and playing you know mahjong for for hours on end right and and that's how they they kind of did it how much of that would you say is it was so important to your future success in understanding china and the ability to under, uh, understand China and how does that translate to how much brands need to put into uh, even investing in people to go and do that for themselves as well yeah so listen I'm, I'm no Peter Hessler um, I'm no James Fallows again those are kind of the guys I stood on the shoulders of mm -hmm. but the most important lesson that I learned going through all that that applies for brands and retailers and technology companies and anybody who's interested, not just in China, the mainland,
but China is a global opportunity. Asia is a global opportunity as this. There are four core things that if you don't dig deep, deep, deep into, it's not a matter of whether you will succeed or fail. It's just a matter of when you will fail. And that is the importance of culture. This is especially in China. Yeah. Culture, history, philosophy, and language. Those four are the key to unlocking everything in that market. And where I see the bodies of corporate entities littered on the rocks on the shores of China are almost always the same. It's the companies who don't spend the time digging deep enough into culture, philosophy, language, and history to understand what the purchase motivator is, what the cultural context for their product is, and where it fits into both the individual and collective psyche of the Chinese consumer. That's the number one lesson I took away from uh, the, the very early years I spent there. You're absolutely correct. Um, I, I, I mean, I have my own um, kind of path. A lot of the things that, that I went through, I, I worked for some, from some very interesting companies. I have played some very interesting roles. I have been given some very interesting titles and business cards and been shuttled off to different places around China in order to represent a certain position within a certain company because of a, a certain look that I had. I, <laughs> people can infer that there are those who know what what that exactly means. Yeah. But um, it it just it was a lot of taxi rides. It was a lot of making mistakes, tons of mistakes. Um, it is it is so essentially true. I never nailed the language. Um, I I did not and was not there long enough. Nor um, truthfully did I put in the work consistently enough to nail the language. But the, I spent a lot of time feeling my way through the the culture, the philosophy, and the history of of China to really try to understand where they come from. And and it's complex. I think that's why it's such important advice, just because of how deep and complex it is. Um, mm. It's everything in the fabric of who they are and where they've come from and how they operate and how they think. It's, it's, it is absolutely crucial. And the problem is there's no, there's no online course that you can take on Udemy or Coursera that can help you learn that. No. And, and by the way, um, I could actually see the quotes around interesting and certain through the airwaves here as we're speaking. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it, um, it's incredible. It's incredible. No, th listen, th there's there's no online course. There is no single answer. Most certainly, I don't have all the answers. The only thing I've learned over 18 years is, and, and again, I don't want to be cliche here, but it's the truth. For every one thing I learn, I realize there's five things I don't know. I think the <laughs> value of some people who just been around it for a long time is there, you know, if we start out with a gap of one to 10 between people who've been there for five, 10, 15, 20 years on a knowledge basis, you know, some people might start with a one and then there's a 10 you want to achieve. And after 20 years, I've got a five. Mm -hmm. And if I can bridge the gap between the one and five, I hopefully think that's, that's where I bring some value to people and to companies trying to operate there.
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it depends on your existence too, because there's a difference. And we know that I was there for eight, but I was almost, I mean, I was a full on, on my own for those eight. I mean, I showed up with, with, with the suitcases and a bit of money in a bank account and, and no other plan. But going back to the language thing for a minute, because I, okay. I think where I kind of failed, there, which is no, no. I think that, you know, when you said, you know, I never nailed it and got it fully. Um, I don't, I don't think I did either. Um, so when I'm talking about the importance of, you know, the language, culture, history, and philosophy, I didn't mean it necessarily had to be a personal mastery, mm. but it should be mm. brand corporate, um, consumer facing mastery. So <clears throat> ensuring that you do what we call in our office, the six D's due diligence, due diligence, and due diligence. Mm. And so. <laughs> I love it. Which, I love it. That's great. Which goes along with our other mantra in our office, which is putting strategy before structure. Mm. Mm. Sounds kind of obvious, right? Yes. Um, yes. But... I, I will tell you after 18 years there, still to this day, probably 60 to 70% of the companies that come to me, I engage with or that I study um, consistently put structure before strategy in China. Yeah. They want to do it on the cheap. They want to do it on the fast. Um, and it, it never works out well. So due diligence and to get to strategy before structure is the most important. And listen, I'm not a linguist, right? Even my most brilliant project managers and consultants, in my office, they're not technically linguists either, but we do bring in linguists, right? To take a look at 40,000 characters and figure out what are you really saying by placing one character next to another one? Yeah. How do you avoid simple transliteration fumbles that are so easy to avoid if you just spend a little more time and money? So just on the language thing, I wanted to be clear there. I know plenty of people, um, foreigners, not just, you know, Western foreigners, but, um, you know, Eastern foreigners or Northern foreigners or African foreigners who've done well in China without having mastered the language personally, um, but ensuring that whatever they're trying to do for themselves, for the company or for clients that they have, that there are masters of the language surrounding them. Yeah, it's it's an understanding uh, of the of the language, but not in the um, literal sense. I, I think. Um, I mean, I I have some some pretty awful uh, experiences. At least they they felt horrible at the time. Now I look back and understand how amazing they were. But um, to understand, it's not what they're saying; it's what they're what's it's what's being said, and that um you know the it, because again it's it's very complex it's there's a lot of poetry there's a lot of meaning though they wouldn't necessarily speak in direct terms so this is where the understanding is of where they're they're sometimes they're just showing you face they're not saying no um they're they're seemingly saying yes um, but you have to understand that it is, it's actually a hard no. Um, they're just trying to show you respect. Um, well, that's right. And that, you know, that's a, a great example we're talking about, but it, it's the fact that the language, the culture, the history and philosophy are completely intertwined. Completely. <laughs> so understanding, you know, where 
where the combination of Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Maoism meet to make somebody think about the right word to use in any given moment, my goodness, that's a level of complexity that we, at least as Westerners, I don't think we even could even begin to appreciate it, never mind master it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's little things, you know, where those four elements meet. And so if you're a brand or a retailer or a tech company in China, you know, the key message here is spend the time doing your 60s to develop the strategy before the structure based on the intertwining of those four key elements. And that sounds really tedious and boring to the CEO who's looking for a fast one-year double-digit growth number in China to help cover up how badly he's doing in North Dakota. But that's not going to get you there. I, it's it's like really kind of understanding Shakespeare in a way. Um, and uh, to me, I, I I try to understand Shakespeare as well as I can. But um, but that is a lot of it. It's really it's really beautiful. It's really complex. It's really beautiful. Um, but there's just so much nuance, and it takes time uh, and effort, and you have to pay attention, and you have to want to understand. We talked about how there's no one digital course. Uh, there's no one podcast, but hopefully there is this one that can help. Uh, and there's no one book to help you understand China, but there are a couple of really good ones that can get you a lot of the way there. And you are responsible for those. I want to ask about the first one, China's super consumers, what 1 billion customers want and how to sell it to them. Talk to me a little bit about kind of what, what made you write it. And I know you had all the material and if you didn't, you went and got it, but what was the inspiration behind writing it? Um, and what were the misconceptions that Westerners had about China back in, you know, circa 2014, uh, when you released the book? Yeah. So that, that book, I, you know, again, time flies, um, that book came out roughly October of 2015. So about five years ago. In 2005, I made a, a major shift in the work I was doing in China. Prior to 2005, I was primarily focused on helping companies make, procure, source products in China, working with them on their global supply chain integration with China, and really working on the back end, the non-consumer facing side of mm-hmm. uh, China. And, and hey, what did that reflect? Um, that reflected where China was at the time. It reflected how China went from um, not being a part of a global community and having an insignificant um, uh, economy to, you know, by the early 2000s, showing promises of you know, this is a company, a company, well, China Inc., maybe it is, uh, <laughs> um, but maybe, um, you know, a country on the come. Yeah. But in 2005, I really thought deeply about where this was all going. And I became convinced that China sometime in the near future would become the most important consumer market in the world. Um, and so going from factory of the world to marketplace of the world. And so I left Beijing and went to Shanghai and I started a company called China Brightstar, which was uh, focused on taking brands and retailers and investors and tech companies and service companies into the China market to serve uh, customers and consumers. 
the book that came out, I think, was a compendium of all the things that I had learned and done in the seven or eight years before. And one thing that came very clear to me was there was a progression of the Chinese consumer society, spending power, attainment of wealth that followed a pretty distinct path from the late 90s to about 2012 or 13. And so China's super consumers didn't mean that there were a whole bunch of people with fat wallets flying around to save kittens and dogs from trees. Um, they were super consumers because in my estimation, from an anthropologic and sociological point of view, it was the first major consumer demographic to change the way the world would run since the post-war Americans. Mm -hmm. So the post-war Americans were really the first super consumers. Um, they, they changed the world, yeah. right? Filling and buying the homes in the post-war period, making the things that a devastated world needed, that, that consumer generation, the world had never seen an economy run on consumption before. And so what I'd seen develop by about 2012 was that this would be the second super consumer generation the world had ever seen, and that a billion people were going to change the way we make, move, sell, and buy everything. And so that's what that book was really about, documenting how we went from Chairman Mao to Chairman Ma hmm. and the journey we took. <laughs> Um, from you know roughly a couple of million consumers with disposable income to eight or nine hundred million consumers with disposable income. So that was the first book. Yeah, and by Chairman Ma, you mean Jack Ma? Of course. Yes, of course. And uh, yeah, as we speak, by the way, tomorrow is his last day. Um, he'll be stepping down as chairman. It, it'll mark the first time that he's not in any official way affiliated with the company that he founded and co-created. Mm -hmm. um, and Daniel Zhang will be the first person to assume the, the, the titles of uh, chairman and CEO of Alibaba Group. And so I know we can come back to that in a little while, but it's a major turning point for the company and the country. Are you, uh, I, just because I have this thought in my head, are you more interested to see what happens with Jack Ma next or what happens with Alibaba next? Uh, Jack, if you're listening, don't take this the wrong way. Um, I'm more interested in the short term to see what's going to happen with Alibaba. Uh, although in the longer term, um, I'm, I'm going to admit uh, fully and freely that Jack is one of my inspirations. I am a Jack Ma fanboy. I, I think he's been one of the most visionary, articulate, inspirational, cultural, business, technology leaders that we've seen this century, early in the century. But you also got to remember Daniel Zhang and Joe Tsai, um, especially over the last five or six years, are the guys who really made this run. You know, they're the, they're the people who envisioned how to go from Taobao to Tmall. They're the people who envisioned Alibaba's globalization, how to grow 1111 into a global event, 
um, the inspiration behind Fresh Hippo and New Retail. And so I think they were all the perfect complement to each other where Jack was the charming, funny, articulate, visionary, um, and the, the retiring kind of quiet Daniel Zhang, who is, you know, an actuary, an accountant, uh, a numbers guy, um, it has been taking the company forward for, for years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from, from Jack's perspective, I am fascinated to see what he will do for global education, global disease eradication, um, uh, development. Is that that where he has spoken about heading into? I, you know, he, in a very humble Chinese way has described it as I'm going back to be an educator. Interesting. (laughs) Um, but what, what, what he, what I interpret, um, is what, what he, he wants to change the world. And, you know, you have to actually go back to, and this is, this is kind of a Jack thing. Their, their mission statement is to make it easy to do business everywhere. That, that's probably a shocking revelation to most people to think that that's Alibaba's mission statement has been yeah. for a while. Why doesn't it talk about selling stuff? He's not talking about selling stuff. He's yeah. not talking about writing code. He's not talking about, uh, and they are not talking about <clears throat> those things. In fact, Jack has always maintained that Amazon's a great e-commerce company. Alibaba's not an e-commerce company in any way, shape, or form. Um, and that's okay. You know, people can believe what they want to believe about the company. So just looking at where Jack's going, um, you know, with his initiative on the electronic world trade platform, um, how I think, I think he had a voice, a strong voice in relaunching and rethinking Alibaba.com. Um, their original property is a global mm-hmm. trade enabler. Um, if you've also looked at how Jack has spent the last three or four years, he spends a whole lot of time in presidential palaces and um, parliaments and uh, working at a very uh, national level with countries to help them develop their technology and their digital initiatives and health and humanitarian causes. So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think anybody's actually ever asked me that before. Uh, in fact, I know nobody's af- ever, ever asked me that before. Um, so I would just say in the shorter term, um, I'm, I'm interested in, in what Alibaba is going to do uh, in terms of their globalization. In the longer term, I want to see how Jack Ma reinvents the world the way he invented um, technology and business and commerce in China. Well, I think it's a, even though it's the first time you ever had that question, that's a brilliant answer. Looking back, you know, China has changed a lot since that first book. And before we talk about your second book, just tell me about what's happened in between. The biggest thing that's happened in between is we went from China's super consumers to China's digital consumers. That was the big, big change over the last three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. Um, the the combination of the smart device, digital payments, and a lack of modern retail infrastructure was the perfect storm to a 
accelerate China's consumer culture and society and to make it a digital first consumer environment. That was the big change. Totally agree. And listen, the title new retail, um, that's Jack Ma's term. Uh, he announced that in the summer of 2016, that the focus of the company would be on creating something called the new retail to in a way dismantle everything that had come before about how we make, move, sell, and buy products um, for a new retail. And by the way, new retail is, um, it's more than just retail. It, it's really a metaphor for our entire lives, the way we live. It's more than e-commerce. It's, a, yeah. it's more than well, just a fancy way of seeing e-commerce, right? So there, there's some terms I'm gonna answer on here, which is there's a difference between e-commerce digital commerce and new retail. Let me jump in for a second. Just, I want to, I want to make sure that people understand the full title of the book. Um, and it's your new book, uh, the one yeah. you just released new retail born in China, going global, how Chinese tech uh, giants are changing global commerce. So I just want to make sure that it, the full encapsulation of the title is out there first. So please continue. We need to follow an evolution here, uh, which started in China. And by the way, you know, the, the extended title, the subhead of the book is, New retail born in China going global, how Chinese tech giants are changing global commerce. Commerce, 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 right? <laughs> so what is e-commerce? Well, it used to be distinct from physical retail. Over the years, e-commerce started to, and it started in China, morph into digital commerce. And the difference between the two is, E-commerce has largely become a destination for a transaction. It's not distinguishable from retail or commerce of any kind, except that you are looking at a screen instead of somebody else's face when you hit buy. So e-commerce means a lot of things, marketplaces, digital native sites. It means your own domain third-party specialty, third-party general uh, e-commerce. The key here is digital commerce means every part of the commercial endeavor has been digitized. And so e-commerce just becomes one habitat in a commercial ecosystem. The new retail, and here's where things get a bit ironic, we didn't really see a transition into new retail before the last two years because everyone was still arguing about the battle between the clicks and the bricks. Would the clicks kill the bricks? Mm-hmm. Was physical irrelevant? Mm-hmm. And it's not a coincidence that's when the headlines started a couple of years ago uh, and all of them had some version of it's a retail apocalypse. In North America, in Europe, retail apocalypse. The problem is that's the complete opposite of the truth. We are in a retail renaissance. There have never been more ways, more places, more technologies, more smart people who enable great buy and sell experiences than any time before. 
And the problem with most of the headline writers is they equate store with retail. True. Store is a physical environment. Some of them are productive and some of them are unproductive. Boring, middle of the road, legacy, non-experiential stores close. True. Stores, physical environments that are completely connected to the new retail are opening at a record pace. So what is the new retail? It is the complete integration of online, offline technology, logistics, and media for an entirely new transactional and commercial experience. And that's for the consumer, for the brand, for technology companies, for service providers. And so what we're really living in now is a world where there are seven or eight companies who are building these massive new retail ecosystems and the habitats that make them up. And so the progression from e-commerce versus offline was to digital commerce, which means every aspect of make, move, buy, sell has been digitized. And the end point, the genius of Alibaba and JD and Kaola and these other Chinese tech companies was they said, the physical environment is just as important, if not more than it's ever been. And if we digitize it and integrate it with the online experience, you've got the new retail. I mean, it, it, it's so fantastic, so fantabulous to talk about. I mean, when we talked about um, where, why do, why was seventy five percent of the world's Bitcoin held in China? Why was eighty percent of of peer to peer lending originating from China? Um, the brick and mortar bank system that led to the rise of of uh, of you know the internet banks and how they, they they instead of catching up, they just start a brand new line. Um, um, at, at a brand new technology uh, and just start fresh rather than trying well, actually, to catch up. So on that point, okay, see again, this is why I said you, you know this shit already. When I write in the book and talk to people, they're like, well, what did China have going for them that we don't, that put them literally four or five years ahead of the West on all this shit? And the irony is it's not what they had, it's what they didn't have. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a legacy banking and checking and credit card system. Credit scores. Which opened the door for lightning digital payment adoption. They didn't have modern retail infrastructure, which opened the way for digital e-commerce first. They didn't have personal computer and personal phone at the home and office and communications devices, infrastructure, which led right to the smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. So really the perfect storm was not what they had, it was what they didn't have. And the genius of a Richard Liu, the genius of a Jack Ma uh, and all the rest was they culturally, linguistically, philosophically, and historically figured out how to make that gap relevant and scalable. They built this genius on what China didn't have, not what it had. 
The other way of looking at it is they built it on what China had, which was those core four. Yeah. And one of the mental, but not the physical. And I think one of one of my my favorite, more recent developments, um, innovations, um, goes back to the subsidiary of, of, of Alibaba and financial and the yep. way that they have been able to just to put it bluntly, they can lend based on your shopping habits. Uh, right. which would have which would have been unheard of i don't know how long in the west that could have possibly have taken to arrive nor would there ever have been the uh necessity for it because the constraint was not there they had other ways of measuring you and giving you a, a credit score in which to lend to get a mortgage or a car payment or anything um but in China, there was no such thing. So that constraint led to the innovation and bred the innovation of having to come up with a new way. And my God, is it exactly, genius? Exactly, exactly. And so remember what I said, the five new, right? Mm-hmm. New manufacturing, right? What's the digital industrial revolution? It's made up of the five new. The five new are new manufacturing, new supply chain, new retail, new finance Hmm. new finance right is technology companies becoming financial institutions yes yes which has the importance of traditional global regional and local financial institutions wanes the importance of an ant financial or an apple credit card etc these guys this is the ecosystem so if there's nothing else we want to talk about on new retail it's the fact that we have moved on and i i beg the audience forget the terms channel and e-commerce and incorporate the idea and the language of ecosystems and habitats into everything that you do Michael, we could go on for days. Um, I, I would like to uh, potentially throw out there the fact that that uh, if the listeners so demand that we may be able to do a second um, a second one, uh, we'll give it a few months uh, and and some, give this one some time to decanter and breathe. But um, in a few months, uh, maybe we'll come back on again and we'll dive um, a lot deeper into, into some of these um, some of these these more nuanced topics for sure. I've loved this episode personally. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Michael. I want to uh, I want to ask you one final question. It just for for our listeners who are thinking about making the jump, making the leap and wanting to go uh, figure out a way to do business in China themselves and and take their companies there. What would your number one piece of advice be? Yeah. So whether you're a company that's looking to engage Chinese consumers in the market for the first time, or whether you're a company who's been there for a year, five years, 10 years, even 20 years, um, the most important thing you can do is to deep dive into what the new retail model is in China and to understand the system of ecosystems and habitats that's been established by the big five players and to look deeply into how to leverage the integration of online, offline technology, media, and logistics to create something massive and fun and profitable in China 
but then to take those lessons home and apply them on a global basis because the new retail was born in China, but it's going global. For everybody who wants to learn more, uh, and uh, uh, there is so much more uh, to Michael Zakur, go and get his new book, New Retail, Born in China, Going Global, How Chinese Tech Giants Are Changing Global Commerce. There is uh, everything you need to know and more um, in, inside of that book, um, encapsulating just about everything that this podcast has to do with. Michael, uh, appreciate it. Thank you very much again. I'll say it once more. It was a brilliant podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Todd. Talk to you soon. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jin.